Thanks for downloading the Humanities Institute of Ireland podcast. This podcast features recordings of academic papers from events hosted by the Humanities Institute of Ireland in University College Dublin. For more information, go to www.ucd.ie forward slash HII. In this episode, as part of the symposium Religion, Toleration and Coexistence, an Historical Dialogue, a recording of a keynote presentation by Professor Alec Ryrie, who is Professor of the History of Christianity in the Department of Theology and Religion at Durham University. His books include The Gospel and Henry VIII, The Origins of the Scottish Reformation, The Sorcerer's Tale, and The Age of Reformation. His research interests include the fluid nature of Catholicism in the mid-16th century and the legacy of the Reformation period for Protestantism. His symposium presentation was entitled From Polemic to Devotion, Tolerance and Piety in Early Modern Britain. Thank you very much, and thank you, Mark, for, for the invitation. I want to start not with the Reformation as such, but with the Cold War. Um, and those of you who are too young to remember living through that particular Hall of Mirrors will forgive me. Uh, it seems to me that there was a pervasive dualism to, especially the latter part of the Cold War, which has decisively shaped the way that we view the early modern period in general and the way that we approach questions like this in particular. And there are some parallels in the historiography of the Reformation which are, which are pretty obvious, like Bob Kingdon's depiction in the 1950s of networks of Genevan agents infiltrating France, um, and also the treatments of the Reformation which are partisan or merely one-sided, obviously fit into that kind of dualist mentality. What I think is more interesting is that some of the attempts to break out of it and to be even-handed also have something of a whiff of the 1970s to them, of détente. I don't just mean that flurry of interest in the summitry of the Reformation in Regensburg, Poissy. There's also the, the confessionalization thesis, which, which many of you will be familiar with, the argument that the Protestant and Catholic Reformations should be seen as parallel rather than as opposite movements, movements engaged in an arms race with one another for the allegiance of Europe's rulers and their populations, both developing similar social shapes and being co-opted to serve similar political purposes. This kind of thing, I think, perfectly reflects a sort of standard Western centre-left analysis of the Cold War, which was inclined to say a plague on both their houses, they're as bad as each other. Now, I'm not at all trying to denigrate any of the scholars who took these approaches. I think all of them are persuasive in their own terms. And if their view of history is influenced by the world around them, you know, that's a glass house that we all live in. I want to make a more specific point. Partly thanks to that legacy, Reformation historians, I think, still find ourselves caught between two equal and opposite oversimplifications. On the one hand, you can concentrate on one side of the confessional Berlin Wall and ignore the other lot on the basis that they're wrong or worse, that they're not interesting. But, of course, none of us want to do that. And so the temptation is to adopt the other approach and to pretend that Catholics and Protestants were essentially the same under their pelts. That's the safe approach. That way you avoid giving offence, or at least if you do give offence, you spread it around evenly. And I want to suggest that that's potentially misleading. Even in the Cold War, it eventually became unmistakable that East and West were much, much more unlike each other than they were like. And this is an idea which has come up a couple of times already this afternoon. The Reformation, even more so, was asymmetric warfare. This was a struggle between various sides, which had very different strengths, very different weaknesses. They also had very different objectives, 
and very different conceptions of what the struggle they were engaged in was about. What I want to do for the next 40 minutes or so is to explore just one example of how that worked, an example which I think may have some relevance to the wider discussions and the the parallels with the modern world that we've been drawing. Let me just say a word about the the context of this first. I should also say, by the way, that this is of no relevance whatsoever. It's just to give you something to look at other than me. As as, as mentioned, I'm in the final stages of writing a book about Protestant piety in England and Scotland in the century or so before the, the wars of the 1640s, a book which is currently ballooning like a dying whale on a beach and whose argument could be summed up as, yes, these folks may have been a little intense, but they're not quite so pathological as you might think. <laughs> now, obviously, here we're dealing not with the threshold of the Enlightenment, but with you know, the absolute pit of visceral confessional hatred, furious anti-Catholicism in particular, an anti-Catholicism which perhaps defined English, Scottish and the nascent British identity more than positive Protestantism did. This is a golden age of religious hatred. It's a golden age of religious polemic. To use a different 20th century parallel, this is polemic as trench warfare, pounding the enemy with a deafening barrage of argument which works much more effectively to encourage your own side than it does to damage the other lot. But in the process, it renders the ground between the two almost impassable. So this is an age of martyrdom, of judicial murder, of mob violence, of religious warfare. And it's one in which the memory of those injuries was cherished and renewed. But, this is really my point, man shall not live by bile alone. As Ian Green's survey of this period pointed out, in fact, devotional works outsell polemical ones throughout the period. Religion is something that you live before it's something that you fight about, at least as a matter of logical precedence. And I think to some extent in this period, in fact, as well. We're used to thinking of religion, and most of the ways we're inclined to talk about religion in this context is as a matter of identity and therefore as exclusion and othering. And as we all know, you only need to blend that with fear or with a weighty sense of responsibility for other people's souls, and quickly things can become very nasty. But my question is, when these people were actually living their own religious lives, when they were being Protestant, rather than arguing about being Protestant, how does that affect the whole question of their whole approach to tolerance coexistence, peace. In answer to this, I wanted to offer two simple and obvious points and then two more complicated, I hope not quite so obvious ones. Simple ones are quick. First of all, most of the time it makes no sense to label Protestant devotion in this period either tolerant or intolerant because the question simply doesn't arise. The dominant themes of Protestant prayer are, certainly in this period and beyond it, are repentance, self-examination on the one hand, and petition or thanksgiving relating to your own personal circumstances, whether spiritual or worldly, on the other. And secondly, where Catholics do appear in Protestant devotion, it is, of course, in a negative role. I mean, that's clearest in preaching. It's obviously routine throughout the period for preachers to denounce popish errors, even, or maybe especially, when there are no actual papists to hear them do so. And Catholics do appear also in public and private prayers. 
but in surprisingly peripheral roles. Archbishop Cranmer's litany includes a petition to be delivered from the detestable enormities of the Bishop of Rome, but that phrase is dropped from the 1559 and subsequent versions. There is a Lutheran hymn translated by Robert Wisdom as Preserve Us, Lord, by Thy Dear Word from Turk and Pope Defend Us, included in Stonehold and Hopkins, the Stonehold and Hopkins whole book of Psalms. But that verse is the one that is always picked out by anybody who wants to, to focus on the most ridiculous text in that, that whole much derided book. Maybe more, more telling is, is an example from the Scottish Book of Common Order. Throughout this period, the, the Scottish Book preserves a set of prayers said to have been written during the Scottish Civil War of 1559-60 when Protestant lords are at odds with a Catholic regime backed by French troops. And these are prayers to purge this realm from false teachers, dumb dogs, dissembled hypocrites, cruel wolves, and all such as show themselves enemies to thy true religion. And in principle, they're available for Scots ministers to use in their parishes every week. But these prayers are so specific to the particular historical circumstance that it's hard to imagine they were actually used much past, say, the mid-1560s. I do think they do indicate one of the points at which Catholics are able to surface explicitly in the Protestant devotional round, and that's as a response to the news. Intercessions for Protestants facing danger at Catholic hands overseas are commonplace in published prayers for private and domestic use throughout the period. They're often paired with the standard... You know, almost unthinking prayers for monarch, church, and commonwealth. And that pairing is reinforced after 1613, especially after 1618, when prayers for James I, James VI and I's daughter, Elizabeth of Bohemia, are used to bring in the entire European crisis. And of course, there are events with an anti-Catholic flavour, above all the gunpowder plot, which reverberate through Protestant devotions via the annual commemorations. So that's the big picture here. You don't see much of Catholics in your regular devotions if you're a Protestant during this period, and that's important. But when they do appear, it's as murderers. And that brings me to the first and slightly shorter of my two more detailed points. As is well known, one of the most influential texts throughout this period is early modern Protestant is John Fox's Acts and Monuments, the so-called Fox's Book of Martyrs, which through its own repeated editions and the many more abridged versions of it helped to keep the memory of earlier persecutions alive. There's a great deal of evidence of this book being used devotionally, collectively, individually. You can find, for example, radical conventicles in Essex. In, there's one in the 1580s which is broken up and found to be listening to collective readings of this. But it's not just the radicals. At the Little Gidding community, you know, of, of all the kind of nests of, of Anglo-Catholicism, it was read aloud during supper on Sundays. Margaret Aston says that the Little Gidding community treat Fox as second only to Scripture. And, I mean, this book is ferociously expensive, but it's also lent, passed around. The stories are memorised so much so that Ben Johnson could make a joke of it. The Puritan minister, Ignatius Jourdain, was said to have read the whole book seven times, which, given that it's two and a half times the length of the Bible, is an achievement worth respecting. It's also repeatedly reprinted at moments of heightened anti-Catholic feeling, 1641, 1684. So naturally, this suggests an aggressive anti-Catholicism at the heart of the Protestant devotional life, rubbing fresh salt daily into the wounds of confessional hatred. 
I want to argue that it doesn't necessarily. Obviously, Fox's book is full of fuel for any anti-Catholic fires that you might be wanting to build. But if you look at how the book, in fact, seems to have been read and the story seems to have been heard, I think you see a rather different set of responses. This turns on a a very specific problem of the Protestant devotional life, which, which Alex was raising earlier. This is the attitude towards crisis in general and persecution in particular. And put simply, Protestants need these things. Persecution, as they will regularly point out, is a sign of God's favour. Peace and prosperity are a sign that you are so firmly in the devil's grip that he doesn't need to assail you. Whereas God disciplines those whom he loves. This doctrine fits snugly with major Protestant theological themes. It's got extensive biblical backing, of course, and it's also an invaluable source of strength. I think this is particularly important. It's an invaluable source of strength in Protestantism's early years. After all, how do you go about stamping out a movement which positively glories in being persecuted? The problem comes in the years after 1559-60 when Protestantism is the established religion of England and Scotland. Protestants still need crisis. They still need spiritual dynamism, progress. Sanctification is supposed to be relentless. You're supposed to be holier every day. It's no use subsiding into a settled rhythm of piety, because not to progress is to fall back. But who's going to persecute you now? Who's going to drive that sense of dominance? I think this is one of the things that makes Fox's stories such appealing reading for English and Scottish Protestants, maybe especially for the Scots, because they've got so few martyrs of their own. Given this urgent need for crisis, given the absence of any real persecution, Fox's book serves two purposes. First of all, it helps to underline Protestantism's legitimacy in the present by demonstrating its persecution in the recent past. The argument being essentially God does discipline those whom he loves just because he's not doing it right now doesn't change that fundamental point. And secondly, and this is what I think is really important, it encourages you, even if you live in peaceful times, to find your own persecution. That's partly a matter of spiritualising it. Fox himself believes that the example of the martyrs should encourage readers to stand more stoutly in battle against our adversaries, learn the more easily to condemn and despise the world. And he's very clear by that, by that, that the adversaries he's thinking of are temptations to sin and to worldliness. These are, this is an inner struggle. But it's also a matter of what you might call pious fantasizing. If you read the stories of the martyrs in Fox, you almost inevitably, if you read them as a believer... You almost inevitably ask yourself, could I do that? Would I stand firm if it were me? There's plenty of evidence that that kind of thrill of fear, of vicarious suffering, is one of the main things that Protestant readers seek from their reading of Fox and of the other accounts of the martyrs. Gervais Babington's Elizabethan bestseller, A Brief Conference Betwixt Man's Frailty and Faith, tackles the fears with which he thought his Protestant contemporaries were most often troubled. And the last one, that's some ways the most important one he turns his attention to, is, I fear my nature if persecution should arise for religion. And he describes how he deals with this whensoever I think of this matter, which makes it sound like an almost everyday event, and I think for some people it was. We're told, for example, of a, a seven-year-old girl in the, the chronology puts it in the early 17th century, um, who... D- described as being tempted to deny her faith and how she consequently began to examine myself on this manner. What wouldst thou do if thou shouldst be tempted to deny Christ and be called to suffer for his sake as some of thy kindred were in Queen Mary's time? 
you know, this is something that she says in the 1650s, recalling something that happened 30 years before that, but reflecting on events that had happened a century ago. Grace Mildmay, as a girl, was permitted only three books alongside the Bible, of which the Acts and Monuments was one. As an adult, she believed that all Christians ought to make ourselves expert in the book, whereby our faith may be strengthened and our hearts encouraged manfully to suffer death and to give our lives for the testimony of the truth of God. That's what she sees as the devotional impact of reading it. John Forbes of Corsi in Aberdeen described lying awake, meditating in my bed in the morning upon the persecutions of the saints of God, praying that God would uphold us and bear us through all our trials and make us faithful and joyful, joyful to the death. Elizabeth Jackson, English matriarch who dies in 1620, was said to be very mindful of the fiery trial which might come upon us. And she, for her, her part, looked for it and prepared for it. Yea, she was minded rather to burn at a stake than ever to yield unto popery or betray the truth of the gospel. What makes that remark stand out amongst the, you know, the many others who, who say this sort of thing is the explicit, explicit mention of popery. Very unusual in these comments to actually identify or pay any direct attention to the adversary who's doing these things. And even she doesn't really seem to have focused on it. The concentration is not on Antichrist. It's on the inner struggle. Can I stand firm? And I think that this fearful fascination with hypothetical martyrdom is a, a major theme of Protestant piety during this period. And it's reinforced by the much-repeated truism that all Christians must, in some sense, be martyrs. William Pink, for example, in the, in the early 1630s, taught that none are saved but martyrs. Martyrs either actually or habitually. That is, you don't actually need to be killed. But if nobody's going to kill you, then you do need to make your own inner martyrdom. Lewis Bailey's practice of piety, this is far and away the most popular devotional text in the period, emphasises that everybody must be a martyr in will, if not in deed. The, the Scots minister, Patrick Simpson, the, the story is that when he was on his deathbed, some children whom he'd baptised were brought to him to be blessed. And he warned them that they might be baptised with the baptism of affliction and martyrdom as the bairns of Bethlehem. The parents present objected that he might be scaring the little ones. But he declared, none enters into heaven but martyrs. He who has it rooted in his heart to suffer for the truth is already a martyr. So it's that struggle to make yourself a martyr inwardly. The resulting churchfuls of wannabe martyrs, I, I, I think, produce something of a pastoral problem, which Protestants deal with it using the, the, their absolutely characteristic two-step to try to, on the one hand, comfort the fearful and at the same time daunt the overconfident. On the comforting side of the balance, you find William Pink, again, having just told people that they must be martyred, urging them to afflict not thyself with such sad supposals. What if Queen Mary's days should come again? What if I should be brought before such a fellow was born? This is early 1630s, 80 years, a lifetime after these events. That, you know, he can still assume that people are afflicting themselves with these supposals. To, to urge them not to do that, he quotes Christ's cold comfort that every day has enough evil of its own. Robert Harris has, in the 1620s, has similar words of comfort for those who fear that flames are intolerable and merciless. Gabriel Powell has a similar take on this, rather less helpful. He says, burning alive is not so extreme a torment as commonly it's thought to be. <laughs> the, the argument being that Christ will give his elect courage. On the daunting side, one of Fox's stories in particular is always trotted out. 
This is the, the tale of Lawrence Saunders and Dr. Pendleton, who are imprisoned together in, 16, in 1555. Pendleton you know, makes great avowals that he'll stand firm to the death. Saunders is terribly afraid that he's going to crumble and waver. But in the event, it's Pendleton who gives in and Saunders who goes to the fire. The lesson is that the fearful should be confident and the confident should be fearful. This is exactly the kind of paradox that Protestant theology loves. For those who aren't so easily reassured, there was more practical advice. We have a couple of writers citing the example of Thomas Bilney, who first tried his finger by himself in the candle before he tried his whole body in the fire. I, I don't know if 17th century Protestants are actually doing that, but you know, they're, they're explicitly encouraged to take that kind of attitude. But in some ways, the real test of whether you could stand firm isn't that kind of bodily one, but it's whether you find the inner strength to do so. And the best way of testing that is not to put your hand in a candle, but to meditate upon and try yourself against the stories of the martyrs. My point is that a great many modern commentators in Fox's book, myself included, have pointed out that his villains are much more vivid than his rather samey heroes. Clearly, Fox did a great deal to demonise or to entrench the demonisation of certain historical figures. But I think if we look at the devotional use of his stories... Anti-Catholicism is at best a minor theme in what his readers took from it. They didn't read it to warn of coming terrors or to fire up self-righteous hatred, but to question their own steadfastness. I'm not suggesting that martyrology is a force for reconciliation and peace, but I am suggesting that it's not necessarily as divisive and aggravating as we assume. And in the context of our broader discussion, I think this may be of some importance the problem of how history is used to keep alive and to aggravate sectarian religious tensions is one that we are all familiar with. From, it, it often appears as a major part of the problem. And from outside, it's easy to look at a group concentrated on their own history and say, oh, get over yourselves. But for a start, that's, not, that's unlikely to be helpful. I think there may also be some ground in, rather than asking for history to be dismissed, to think about the different ways in which even the most potentially inflammatory history can be used. Now, I promised you one more answer to the question of how Protestant devotion affected the business of cross-confessional relations. I I mentioned that Bailey's Practice of Piety is the best-selling devotional book of the period overall, well over 50 editions in the 30 years after its first appearance in 1612, nearly as many again over the century that followed. But it took took Bailey's book some time to overtake the previous record holder, a book first published in 1584, which went through some 30 editions in 45 years, half of which, 15 editions in one year following the year following its publication. This was a book of Christian exercise appertaining to resolution, universally known as the Book of Resolution. The title page declares that it's edited by Edmund Bunny, former subdean of York, moderate Puritan, and attributes the authorship coyly to R.P. It's an open secret that R.P. is Robert Parsons, the English Jesuit who's one of the Elizabethan regime's most wanted men. Parsons had published a devotional book which he called the first book of the Christian exercise in 1582. Bunny edited it lightly, removed explicitly Catholic references and passages like the section on purgatory, didn't make other major changes or additions to it, and he created a Protestant bestseller. 
Naturally, some Protestants were alarmed by this. I mean, the, the most prominent of these is the Essex minister Richard Rogers, whose backbreaking book, The Seven Treatises, which becomes one of the cornerstones of Puritan practical divinity, is admittedly written largely as a repast to the Book of Resolution. One of the prefaces to The Seven Treatises, there are several of them, um, says that books like The Resolutions of the Jesuitical Father Parsons. Um, had the effect of ensnaring and entangling the minds of ignorant and simple Christians in the corrupt and filthy puddle of popish devotion. Rogers' own preface included an extended critique of Parsons, who he said had snared many simple people's consciences with his pretended show of godliness. And it's not just Rogers and his friends who are worried about the impact of so many Protestants reading this Jesuit text. The titles of other prominent Protestant devotional works that are contemporary with this, like Gabriel Powell's The Resolved Christian Exhorting to Resolution, seven editions, John Tennyson's A Threefold Resolution Necessary to Salvation, five editions. I mean, the, the repeated use of this buzzword is a backhanded compliment to Parsons' bestseller. And it's not just Parsons. Robert Southall's book of Catholic devotional poetry, St. Peter's Complaint, goes through some 14 London editions, plus an Edinburgh one, between 1595-1636. A Protestantized version of Louis de Granada's of Prayer and Meditation, nine editions. There are only three editions of Jeremiah Drexel's Considerations Upon Eternity that come out in the period I'm looking at, all of them in the 1630s, but there are 18 more over the following 85 years. There's only one London edition of Gaspar Luarte's Exercise of a Christian Life, that one in 1594, but Rogers believes that that too is seducing good Protestants from the truth. And that's just the work of the post-Reformation Catholics. Medieval and Renaissance Catholic devotional works are embraced even more enthusiastically by a Protestant readership. John Bradford's Influential Meditations, this one of the most popular Elizabethan devotional texts, eight editions of them on their own, very widely excerpted and anthologized beyond that, but large sections of this are simply translations from Juan Luis Vives. As Helen White first documented a lifetime ago, if you scratched a great many of the devotional works of the Elizabethan period, you would find Vives or the wider medieval primer tradition underneath. As for the most popular devotional work of the later medieval period, The Imitation of Christ, two different Protestant English translations together go through 23 editions. I want to spend the remainder of this paper looking at that phenomenon and what it means. One... Give you a different picture to look at. One obvious interpretation of all these Protestants reading Catholic books... The interpretation which Rogers and his friends feared, which some contemporary Catholics triumphantly claimed, and towards which several modern scholars of the subject, chiefly literary scholars, have leaned, this view is that Protestantism's plundering of Catholic devotional works is a tacit admission that Protestantism itself is lacking something. Sir Edwin Sands claimed in 1605 that Catholics were reproaching Protestants for the poverty, weakness, and coldness of their devotion on the grounds that they are forced to take the Catholic books to supply theirs. And Sands admits, admits that that claim cannot altogether be denied to be true. Parsons himself, who strongly objected to the pirated version of his work, levelled a similar charge against his Protestant editor, Edmund Bunny. He asked where or when any of his religion did either make or set forth of themselves any one treatise of this kind or subject. You can't do devotion. You've got to steal ours. And 
Bunny, in his reply, could only actually come up with two English-language works, one of which, embarrassingly, was Bradford's Meditations. Evidently, he didn't know that Bradford had culled those from a Catholic source. But that's not surprising that he didn't know that because Bradford and other Protestant editors routinely avoided mentioning that they were using Catholic sources. Another defender of Protestantism's devotional life that, you know, that a couple of decades later is forced into the slightly pathetic claim that when it comes to devotional writings, the Romanists for the most part exceed in bulk, but are divines in weight. But I think in fact on any fair assessment, the Protestants often find it hard to match quality as well as quantity. Powell's The Resolved Christian, for example, is a pretty poor imitation of Parsons. It's got a sort of high-handed declamatory style better suited to polemic than to devotion. It tends to deal with pastoral problems like the fear of death, for example, by dismissing them with trite formulae rather than with any kind of serious engagement. And anybody who's spent any time reading printed Protestant prayers will be aware of their inexorable tendency to turn into self-administered sermons. Protestantism is, you can argue, a polemical religion which simply lacks the spiritual depth to do devotion. There's a more nuanced but no less damning version of the same critique which sees Protestantism as a religion of doctrine. Well, Catholicism is the one of devotion. There's an intimate connection, unmistakably, between godliness and correct knowledge of doctrine for Reformed Protestants. And this connection infuses their devotional works. And I mean, there are some scholars who have argued that this precisely is Protestantism's problem. The emphasis on divine sovereignty and human fallibility makes most devotional exercises almost impossible. Now seems that that's an exaggeration. But certainly the Protestant priority on doctrine is unmistakable. It's striking that in response to Parsons' challenge to find Protestant devotional works, most of the items that Edmund Bunny reels off are in fact doctrinal treatises. Calvin's Institutes, for example, plus a whole string of biblical commentaries. And he explains the scriptures you know do altogether treat of devotion, piety, etc. This is not because Bunny has nowhere else to turn but because for Protestants, doctrine is devotion. And for example, Luther's Galatians commentary, one of the ones that Bunny cites, has a glowing reputation for spiritual solace. And manifestly, Protestants were more dedicated to bringing biblical scholarship to the masses than Catholics were. But by the 17th century, Protestants were also routinely acknowledging that Catholics did have a greater reputation for devotion, even though they tried to deny that that was unjust. Ours, as they say, is a religion of carnal liberty, theirs of holiness. John Brinsley huffed, trying to disprove it. But before long, Protestants are conceding that while Catholics' errors might be egregious, their fervour, at least, was exemplary. Samuel Ward compares the Jesuits' zeal favourably to that of most English Protestants, whom he calls lukewarm worldlings that serve God without life. Now, of course, there's a political purpose behind this. James Perrott pauses in a diatribe against Catholic corruptions to admit that Catholics are more devout in that which they do less understand, are far more frequent in prayer than most Protestants. My favourite example of this, though, comes from Henry Burton in his polemic against John Cousins' Laudian Book of Devotions. Burton imagines good Protestant ladies at court complaining that they're being forced into trying to follow Cousins' scheme in order to compete with the urgent examples of Roman Catholic ladies, among whom we converse, who press us with their exemplary practice of piety and devotion in their religion, putting us and our religion to shame if we do not equalise at least, if not outstrip them in point of devotion. 
Now, of course, as far as Burton's concerned, their devotion is idolatrous and worthless, but he makes no attempt to deny the, the assiduousness of their practice. Now, maybe it shouldn't be surprising that Protestant devotional practices lack the... Okay, another picture for you. Another... The, 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 the sophistication and rigour of their Catholic counterparts. I mean, Protestantism explicitly looks for an unstructured and individualistic, has, you know, takes a laissez-faire approach to these matters. But I don't think it will quite do to dismiss this as a spiritually starved tradition, stealing crumbs from the neighbours. I think something more interesting is going on here. Consider the opposite case for a moment. There is virtually no Catholic use of Protestant devotional materials during this period, to my knowledge, anyway. And it's easy to see why not. It's not just that Catholicism's tighter disciplinary structures would have made it tricky. It's also that most Protestant devotional materials are so shot through with Protestant doctrine that stripping the heresies out of them would have reduced them to ribbons. It's not that Catholics' devotional self-sufficiency is such that they would never feel the need to look beyond their borders. Rather, that Protestantism is much better equipped than Catholicism was to be devotionally omnivorous, and also that Catholic materials are much better suited to cross-confessional adaptation than Protestant ones were. This is what I mean by recognising that the struggle between Catholic and Protestant is asymmetric warfare. The two traditions are not mirror images of one another. They are genuinely different beasts, different kinds of beasts. They're able to exploit one another's strengths and weaknesses in different ways. So why should Protestants have used Catholic materials? Some of them do try to conceal the fact, but others are unapologetic enough to tell us and justify doing so. And the first and simplest argument is, why not? Richard Braithwaite, presenting a devotional anthology which consists largely of medieval materials, ridicules the view that flowers of this nature lost much of their native beauty, vigour and verdure because culled from a Roman border. A rose from any other soil would smell no sweeter. This, of course, is the classic ceremonial conformist manoeuvre, denying that Protestantism should be a, a simple negative image of Catholic piety, arguing rather that it should boldly claim from Rome whatever it wanted, whatever was not corrupt. But the reason that argument is so often made is that it's not just the committed ceremonialists who feel its force. Moderate Puritans, like Bunny, accept it as well. He hopes that by accepting of our adversaries' labours so much as is good, they, or some few of them, will better perceive that wherein they shall do well, they may look to be as readily encouraged by us as when they do ill to be admonished. And he further justifies what he's doing by citing as a precedent of the successful Protestant editions of the Imitation of Christ. And that, I think, provides us with the two subtler and more powerful arguments for Protestant use of Catholic materials. First of all, the place of the medieval heritage, and secondly, the contentious quest for what Bunny called pacification. Pacification, peace, by the way, I think are potentially really quite important words in this. If we're looking for early modern terms that give a positive value to the things that we would label pluralism and so forth, I think peace is an important term. Anyway, medieval devotional materials, much less problematic for Protestants than contemporary Catholic ones. That's partly, of course, just the condescension of posterity. You don't need to hold the dead to the same exacting standards as the living. Protestant historians like John Bale, John Fox, John Knox, all of whom could be stubbornly precise when dealing with perceived errors amongst their contemporaries, can be blithely inclusive about past generations. Bale's roll call of the true church includes 
unlikely figures like Benedict of Monte Cassino, the Venerable Bede, even St. Dominic, which I think is pushing it. As Knox put it, medieval figures like that could be admired by Protestants, not because they're right on every point, but because they showed some spunk of God's light, even in the time of greatest darkness. And the reason for extending this kind of generosity to them is both that the dead can't resist being co-opted into the golden thread of truth, which Protestant historians believed had persisted unbroken through most centuries of Christendom, the, the, the most corrupt centuries, but also that the historians can't afford to be too picky about who they include if they're going to build that kind of apostolic succession. This enthusiasm about rescuing as much as you can from the past helps to feed a Protestant appetite for medieval devotional materials. The rash of republication of Lollard texts, which gives the Infant Reformation age, if not respectability, is, is fairly well known. The tendency of Protestant editors to lay hold of more or less innocuous medieval texts and rebrand them as Lollard is, is less so. Alex Walsham has drawn our attention to one example of this, there, there are others. It's a sign that orthodox medieval traditions are used as enthusiastically as medieval, as, as heretical ones are. The point is obvious, but it bears repeating. Protestants were late medieval Christians, or at the least they're the heirs of late medieval Christianity. They deliberately reject large parts of that heritage, but they can no more rid themselves of it than they could transport themselves back in time to the first century. And some parts of it still exercise a deep pull on them. The most obvious sign of this is the imitation of Christ. Its enormous popularity crossed the Reformation barrier as if it didn't exist. And from a devotional point of view, sometimes it didn't. As well as popular pre- and post-Reformation versions, there's an unacknowledged but important bridge edition in the shape of Queen Catherine Parr's Prayers Stirring the Mind Under Heavenly Meditations, the bulk of which is rendered from Book 3 of Imitatia. As Max von Habsburg's invaluable doctoral thesis on this argues, the Imitatia has got a dual appeal to Protestants. First of all, its intensely Christocentric piety and focus on the inner life anticipates and, and meshes beautifully with their doctrinal preoccupations. And secondly, it speaks more specifically to English Protestantism's need in the Elizabethan period to shift its attention away from the doomed project of further institutional reformation and towards inner spiritual renewal. And of course, the work of translation, as with all these Protestant versions of Catholic devotional works, is not about textual accuracy. It is, as Max puts it, an exegetical exercise, whose purpose is to sieve the original text through the filter of Scripture to make it safe for Protestant consumption. And so in the Imitatio, for example, as there have been in Parsons' work, there's a series of changes, most of them small, some excisions of entire sections, most obviously Book 4 dealing with the Mass, which you just can't deal with. But that filtering process, although it removes sections, does not add explicitly Protestant doctrines to the text. It reduces the imitatio to a state which Catholics would have found inoffensive, although perhaps a little bit denatured. And there are Catholic editions which also drop book four. The Protestant editors are trying not to recreate the text in their own image. They're trying to purify it to the point at which they and their readers could learn from it. And something very similar can be said of other Protestant uses of, of medieval sources. Joseph Hall's hugely influential The Art of Divine Meditation, 1606, based explicitly 
on a work produced by the Brethren of the Common Life in Brussels in 1494. Hall's preface expresses his frustration that the text he's working from doesn't name the monk who wrote it, whom he wants to credit. We now know it's John Monbiot's Rositum Exercitiorum Spiritualium, which itself draws heavily on other 15th century sources. Hall's, in fact, drawing on texts which also informed Jesuit spirituality. I'm inclined to agree with those who've argued that some of the striking commonalities between Puritan and Jesuit ideas of meditation are the result of parallel development from a shared source rather than of direct influence. But while Hall respects his source's spiritual authority, he's entirely willing to reshape them for his own purposes. Vivas' meditations, the prayers in the primary tradition that survive into Protestant use, all of these likewise are given subtle Protestant makeovers. Where they can adapt medieval devotional materials without compromising on doctrine, they are keen and they continue to be keen to do so. Now, of course, this means that some bits of the medieval tradition are much more amenable than others. Naturally, the, the use of images, prayers to saints, so forth, you can't do anything with that. But the most striking point of contact is the use of meditation on Christ's passion. Imaginative, often graphic recreations of Christ's sufferings are a vital part of later medieval piety. Scholars long pointed out that Protestants distanced themselves from the perceived excesses of this tradition. And so if you look at influential early English language treatments like Bradford's Meditations or John Fox's famous Good Friday sermon from 1570, these tend to be restrained and descriptive in their treatment of the Passion, rather than affective lamentations. They pay at least as much attention to Christ's mental anguish as they do to his bodily sufferings, and they emphasise the triumph of the cross as much as its tragedy. Now, Fox's sermon gives the dying Christ a lengthy victory oration spoken from the cross to death and to the devil. And Fox also promises to set up here in Paul's cross a new crucifix, a new rood unto you, by which he makes clear he means the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which he's going to expound. Like Catherine Parr's famous and ambiguous claim that we should meditate on the book of the crucifix while never endorsing the use of tangible images, this is all risks becoming a little abstract. So it's worth noticing that after that first generation, first couple of generations, Protestants return to passion piety with an increasing enthusiasm and detail. A return which seems, to some extent at least, to have been led by their use of medieval sources. Even Fox's account of the passion in this sermon, he talks about whips and scourges, pricks and thorns, cords and ropes and buffets and blows and mocks and mows and railing and reviling, hammer and nails, cross and gibbet, thirst and vinegar, reed and spear. I mean, this is hardly bloodless. Richard Day's important book of Christian prayers, 1578, is a much plainer echo of medieval patterns. It includes a group of 15 vivid, effective prayers on the Passion, presumably an echo of the 15 O's, which are you know, themselves linked to Christ's wounds. The anti-Calvinist Christopher Sutton, some of whose works openly drew on Jesuit writings, is detailed and graphic in the way he urges his readers to meditate on the Passion. But increasingly, Puritans are doing the same thing. William Perkins, his declaration of the true manner of knowing Christ crucified, has an eight-page section working through the Passion narrative, using each incident as a call to repentance. The very first sentence of John Hayward's Sanctuary of a Troubled Soul 
laments how Christ's blessed body was buffeted with fists, torn with whips, stretched upon the cross, pierced with nails and spear, bathed in the sweet streams of thine own blood. And when he adds a second part to the book, 276 of its 395 pages are taken up with an extended meditation on the Passion. I have a list of similarly gruesome passages and other major writers which I can show to anyone who's interested afterwards. <laughs> Bailey's Practice of Piety is amongst them. It's a commonplace in the early 17th century that preachers could make a scenical representation of the death of Christ, that audiences would weep devoutly at a Passion sermon. And this kind of thing is valued and approved. It's not enough, but in itself it's good and worthwhile. And it also continues explicitly in those who talk about it to be linked to Catholic practices. In other words, insofar as medieval and contemporary Catholic piety focused on inner renewal and sanctification and on the person and sufferings of Christ, and of course those two themes are intimately linked, Protestants are enthusiastic for it. With increasing self-confidence, they claimed that that vein of the medieval inheritance belonged to them. And where their Catholic contemporaries continued to mine it, they were by and large happy to borrow and to adapt the results. This is not a risk-free process for them. Rogers is right to fear that even sanitised versions of Catholic texts might seduce readers to Rome. There are examples of this happening. But nor was it just slavish imitation. The moral themes and the emotional cadences of Catholic piety might be borrowed, but when they were fitted into a Protestant devotional and doctrinal framework, they were changed. It's not a surprise that Parsons was so angry about what Bunny had done to his work. But Parsons' anger is sparked not just by the Protestant sheen which Bunny gives to his words, but by the essay which Bunny attaches to his edition, explaining what he'd done, and which he titles A Treatise Tending to Pacification. If Bunny had been actively trying to infuriate Parsons, then I think this treatise, which essentially tells Catholics in magisterial terms to calm down, could hardly have been better designed. Um, I, I understand, I've not seen it yet, that Peter Lake and Michael Castier's new book on Margaret, Margaret Clitheroe argues that that's exactly what he's trying to do. That this whole thing is actually much more polemical than it appears, seems to be deliberately trying to provoke. Um, I haven't read the book yet, I don't know if I agree with that or not, but certainly whatever Bunny's intention was, the use of it is, 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 is clearly devotional. And this kind of call for peace and unity amongst Christians is a regular feature of Protestant devotional materials. And, of course, we should largely dismiss it as mendacious. Naturally, Protestants, like Catholics, lament that there was, as the Edinburgh preacher Robert Bruce rather wonderfully puts it, digladiation, strife, and contention amongst Christians. Take one thing away from this afternoon, and I recommend the word digladiation to you. (laughs) Everybody wants peace and unity, but, of course, they all want it on their own terms. But there is more to laments like these than cynical self-positioning. The prayer for Christian unity in Thomas Beacon's The Governance of Virtue, this is the first major English Protestant book of prayers. The prayer for Christian unity asks for the grace to lay aside all dissension and insists that there is but one everlasting God and one heavenly Father which thou art and one faith and one baptism which we all profess that call upon thy name. It's one thing to pray against contention. But to pray against contentiousness is implicitly to judge your own behaviour. This is an early sign of what's going to become a running theme in Protestant devotional works. And this is an explicit distaste for polemic. Now you might expect that from somebody like 
say, Richard Hooker. There is a, a characteristically sinuous faux moderation in his claim that the points of contention between Christians are fewer when they come to be discussed by reason than otherwise they seem when by heat of contention they're divided into many slips. But you'll find an out and proud Puritan like Samuel Ward agreeing with him. There is too much of this bitter zeal in all our books of controversies. And he also accurately predicted that future ages would see 17th century theological disputes as a strife about trifles. Joseph Hall claimed that he wrote his Art of Divine Meditation with its medieval roots because I perceived the number of polemical books rather to breed than to end strifes. Green's observation about the sales of devotional as against polemical books suggests that the wider reading public may have agreed. This perhaps is why this book, The Practice of Quietness, by the paid-up Puritan George Webb, runs through seven editions during this period. A book which seeks to encourage a peaceable disposition, a mild nature, swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Now, of course, these individuals have strong views on controversial matters, and they do not apologise for them. Samuel Ward, for example, after having denounced bitter zeal, goes on to insist that lukewarmness is even worse. Rather let your milk boil over than be raw, he says. And pacification could, of course, be a matter of policy as well as principle. There's a, you know, that, the, there's a transitive sense to that word, pacification. It's something that you do to people, which you know, has a sense of violence in itself. Bunny admits that he hoped that if Protestants and Catholics shared their devotional texts, this would draw Catholics from their errors and would do so more effectively than a barrage of polemic would. But that's only possible, that hope is only possible, because of the nature of devotional as against polemical life. One of the arguments that I'm going to be making in this forthcoming book is that if you look at them through a devotional lens, the differences between conformist and Puritan Protestants blur to the point of being remarkably difficult to pin down. Devotional texts often simply resist categorization in these terms. And the same is true, to a lesser extent, of the gulf separating Protestants from Rome. For all their disagreements, their devotional experiences and ambitions were remarkably similar and overlapped. It's not just that Devotional texts are not usually about controversial doctrines and so can be used cross-confessionally. Nor is it simply that devotion encourages self-examination rather than self-righteousness, although I think that's important. The dislike for polemic, especially the feeling that polemic is inimical to devotion, means that the authors of devotional works positively avoid taking controversial stances. They go out of their way to avoid difficult doctrinal issues. This is, of course, evading rather than solving the problems of confessional strife. But evasion is important in itself. The omnivorous devotional habits of early modern Protestants are, I think, one sign that even in this age of antagonism, being Protestant did not need to mean hating 